Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. I'm excited to welcome back a guy that's been on this podcast before. More importantly to me, he's been to my grouse camp. And he is a a guy in this industry I consider a friend. Um, Really, really pleased to be able to listen to Hank Shaw as our keynote speaker at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic coming up in Omaha. Uh, the first time he's taken the uh, the stage at our national banquet. Uh, we're going to tease that a little bit. He, tease in the sense of he's going to give you an overview of um, what his speak, uh, speech, his talk is going to be about. Um, but there's a lot going on connected with Hank at Pheasant Fest, so we're going to talk all about that. As a means of introduction, if you if you been living under a rock and don't know Hank's name. Uh, Hank Shaw has a James Beard award-winning um, website um, called Hunter Angler Gardener Cook that uh, was misspelled here recently, we found. Alas. <laughs> um, and he's uh, the author of five cookbooks, including, most recently, Hook, Line, and Supper, and... The one that hits the center of the bullseye for our audience, pheasant, quail, and cottontail. And as we get started, I have to point out every single copy of pheasant, quail, and cottontail ever sold, no matter where you've bought it. If you purchased it on Amazon, you purchased it through Quail Forever's website, no matter where. And this is his idea, Hank Shaw has made a donation to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat mission for every copy ever sold. And he's a life member spending, his, again, his own money to be a life member of Quail Forever. If that doesn't demonstrate his commitment to our organization, and, uh, and, and as he points out on the screen for me, <laughs> he's wearing a uh, well-loved... Quail it's not as well loved as my green one. My green one is uh, is pretty much retired. It's uh, it's it's not really green anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of sweat colored. <laughs> the you uh, I probably have given you. Uh, let's see here. I don't know. It's been a long time since I gave you a hat. Um, I'm particular about hat. I'm yeah. I'm particular about them. Like I. I you know, I'm not, I'm a Gen Xer, so I, I can't do the flat hat and I can't do the, I can't do the, like the really high brim thing. It just, I can't do it. So I have to pick and choose through all your QF and PF hats. Nice. I, I think I got about four that get, that are in the regular rotation. Yeah. <laughs> I think like, honestly, for as much as you've donated over the years, I, I should find you a new hat. <laughs> and I, I think I can find you a low profile one that isn't five panel or high rise. Cause I'm right there with you. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer and uh, low profile. It fits my melon or at least it feels like it fits my melon the best. Yes. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a long winded introduction, but how the heck are you doing? Hank? 
I'm good. I'm good. I am. Uh, I'm looking forward to 2022 being a really good upland year for me because 2021 certainly was not, uh, and that was uh, mostly uh, on me because uh, my latest book, Hook, Line, and Supper, came out last year during the pandemic, and I, with the pandemic, it was especially difficult to uh, to promote it and to get on the road and, and with all the restrictions and everything was different and. Delta and all that kind of stuff. So I worked and worked and worked to try and, you know, how give this thing the best start it could give. And my upland hunting suffered. So this year, um, I'm going to, uh, through hell or high water, I'm going to chase both uh, the, the native upland birds and that mildly <laughs> exotic disco chicken that we all know and love. <laughs> that. I was going to go there earlier. <laughs> my mind sidetracked. Um, but I, 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 I know that there will be members out there that love how passionate you are, uh, particularly about quail forever, mm -hmm. and that how much grief you give me about uh, <laughs> disco chickens. And, and, and I know you love pheasants and pheasants forever, but you just love to needle me. About always, <laughs> always. <laughs> about well, it's, like, it's, it's like the guys over at National Wild Turkey, right? They're like, well, we're, we're, we're fighting for national wild turkey. Like, all right, guys, you won. Now what are you going to do? Like there's wild turkeys everywhere. <laughs> like, right. We should right. be so lucky. Right. Know? Right. And, <laughs> and I get to wear the disco chicken badge. <laughs> You're uh, and I, if, if you don't go to pheasant fest, I highly recommend you following the pheasants forever social media feed during pheasant fest. Cause Bob has arguably the, the weirdest and coolest <laughs> sport jacket that he wears to this event that that has to be seen to be believed <laughs> yeah it, and i'll be honest it, it's um it's hard to look at on on a video screen because it, it it's sort of it's so neon blaze orange <laughs> that it, it it has a video echo to it and you're like really <laughs> um that that uh, that's hard to really see with the naked eye. <laughs> it's look like uh, you know the guys from Wisconsin on opening weekend who wear the the giant full body blaze orange you know winter suits. Like they look like I don't even know what that looks like. It's just like a blaze orange you know Michelin man. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you brought up you know the releasing a cookbook, Hook Line mm -hmm. and Supper during a pandemic, and we've talked on this podcast. You and I have talked on KFan. It's, it's no secret that people spent more time cooking at home during the pandemic. Have you been able to see that through your web traffic at, at your website? Like people um, are going to the website to look for new recipes at a higher rate than they ever, ever have before? Absolutely. So 2020, it's like crazy. We're in 2022, like the endless pandemic, right? So mm. 2020, uh, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is the website, um, which you can get to by huntgathercook.com. Uh, so uh, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook saw an enormous, enormous, like unrepeatable spike in traffic. No kidding. Like starting in April of 2020, when everybody got locked down all the way through the year. And it kind of, it's 2021 got back to normal, but 2020 was nuts, like mm. nuts. Now it, what, it was so good that um, because advertising revenues fell through the floor, as we all know, Mm -hmm. um, it made up for it because there was just millions of extra people coming to the website. And that was really cool because it introduced a lot of pe new people to, to my work and, uh, and a lot of them have stayed. Hmm. And I know you're, 
you, you sort of have a web analytic hat that you wear from time to time. So you, I'm sure you know this, like the most common search <coughs> search terms or types of food. Like when we've talked historically, it, venison, I think, has been the number one searched type of food. Did that change with the release of the fish fish book? Uh, oh, for, you mean for my site? Yeah, overall for your oh. site. For my site, it's uh, it's always been salmon. Oh, oh, it has always been. Yeah, it's always been salmon and then venison. Um, Yeah, uh, there's certain upland recipes like uh, like buttermilk buttermilk fried pheasant or buttermilk fried quail or or Mm -hmm. rabbit. Those do really well. Pheasant noodle soup uh, does really well. Um, Pheasant dumplings, which is a great dish. Um, There are certain things that because because the I mean let's face it, I love plucking all my birds, but Mm -hmm. most people don't. So. The recipes that do really well are ones that people can make with a, a skinned bird. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, it's not like I don't cater to that, but not every, sometimes it's going to be like, nope, yep, this has to be, if you're going to make smoked pheasant, it's got to be a plucked bird because yeah. it's just going to be gross if it's a skinned bird that you smoke for four hours. <laughs> it's going to be like pheasant jerky. At, you know, I would have, and I know we've talked about this on KFAN, I would point people towards the general. As- oh, Yes. Right. That's yeah. That is absolutely in all of your recipes are terrific, but the general general. So yes, that, not, not the insurance company, the general says general says whatever, pheasant. like general says pheasant or quail or grouse or wild turkey or whatever. Like general says white meat is, mm-hmm. is redonkulous. Like it's that in the, and I actually do a uh, kind of an adult version of uh, sad pandas, orange chicken. Uh, that would be Panda Express if you don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a guilty pleasure for most people. Uh, they most people do not like to admit it, much like liking Nickelback. Uh, <laughs> but the pan pandas orange chicken is like I they, you know sales can't be wrong. So I'm like ah you know what that's going to be really good with pheasants. So mm. and sure enough it is. It just needs a little bit more uh, acidity and and heat and a little bit less sugar. Um, at least for my mind to balance it out, but it's, it's crack. I mean, like, mm. <laughs> I don't care how many pheasants you shoot in a season. If you mm. alternate between the general and orange pheasant, mm-hmm. you're never going to go wrong. It is. Um, it is a sweet spot for me. The Asian type of uh, approaches to pheasant. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, they're from Manchuria, right? So, <laughs> you know, there's probably some connection there, but it, you know, it's probably the easiest approach in my opinion is to figure out a way to do some sort of asian whether it's a stir fry or Mm -hmm. a sauce kung pao kung pao works really well with pheasant and you you'll be hard pressed to do it in a way that anybody doesn't like you know it's like you do it as a chinese dish and it's like oh yeah I could do this. Yeah. I'll if you like Kung Pao pheasant or if you like Kung Pao chicken or general's chicken or, or orange chicken, it's, I, I defy most people to tell the difference between it. The only thing you're going to tell the difference is it's a little bit more um, dense. Mm-hmm. It's not tougher, but it's denser. And people mm-hmm. go, oh, so, is this a free range chicken? Like, yes. In fact, it very free range. It lives in ditches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we'll go from ditches to the mountains. You were, you were going to talk about, um, you mentioned you didn't have a lot of opportunity to hunt yeah. this past year. Um, and I know some of that, it has to do with just work, but mm-hmm. uh, another aspect of that is, and I get a message from Holly, your significant other about 
bad news for mountain quail. Our mountain quail spots are all burned up. Yep. Um, tell us about that. It's uh, it's funny how uh, really sad it makes me. It makes Holly too, because uh, between the two of us, you know, on Holly most recently, we had we had scouted out like almost almost twenty different coveys of mountain quail in our area. Hmm. There were a lot of places that we could go and they're pretty sedentary birds. So they're always going to hang out within like a half mile of where you find them. And even though that, that terrain is very difficult because it's, you know, you start finding them around 6,000 feet, um, at least in the sea, in the early season and the end of the season, they come down because of the snow. But, but so we were all set to not only hunt mountain quail ourselves, but to have friends who came from other places because, you know, I'm, I'm one of the probably many people who have the quail slam. Um, I've, I've hunted, um, hunted, shot and eaten every legal quail uh, north of the Rio Grande. Uh, but the mountain quail is usually the hardest one. So mm-hmm. people who are seeking that typically come to us or, or some region around us to get that quail. And it was a way for us to actually give back to all of the people who have shown us really great hunts all over the country and the Caldor fire burned almost all of them. We'll really know, we'll really get a good uh, um, idea of it in April and May when we can, we're going to go back up there and start looking for mushrooms and such, but we'll see what became of all of those spots. Cause they closed the forest down because it was really dangerous with all the mudslides yeah. and stuff like that. But it's, we hope that some of the birds survived and flew away, but we, we know that probably a lot of them did not. And it's pretty, it's, it's, it's hit us kind of, deeply hard i mean it would be as if you're because you know you have grouse camp mm-hmm. and the grouse camp is pretty much in the same spot every year right and imagine that whole forest burning mm-hmm. like it's never going to be the same in your lifetime like it's done like you're until you die that will no longer be a, a good grouse spot and that's the way it's going to be probably with this with our with our mountain quail spots and it's pretty grim i mean we'll that's- we'll move on but it's it's pretty grim and you you mentioned near us where you're talking about is northern california Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I live outside of, I live, if you, if you know Johnny Cash, uh, I live near Folsom. <laughs> I can, uh, I can walk to the prison. <clears throat> yeah. That, that it's really disheartening and your analogy to losing grouse camp, you know, losing that special place. It's deeper than just losing uh, a hunting season and a covey of birds. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of lost the ability to make memories at a really special place for yeah. the foreseeable future. I mean, the, the Sierra Nevada is so large that no human being can understand it. It's just hmm. too big. So hmm. what you do is you choose a swath of the Sierra Nevada that, to make your own, to, to really know the intricacies of it, and it all burned. So Jeez. I've been in California since 2004, and probably something on the order of 60 to 80% of that turf that I had scouted for the last, I don't know how many years, almost 20, 18 years, hmm. burnt, gone. Jeez. That's unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, as you do think about the season ahead, what um, what are you excited about? What what does bring a smile to your face as as a species that you're anxious to chase again, or a place you're anxious to go? I I think I'm going to try and finish the grouse slam this fall. Hmm. So the only two grouse I haven't yet hunted were are the willow and the rock ptarmigan. So, okay. and those are both, uh, I've got a line on them in Alaska. And apparently once you get there and like you find them, it's like, you know, you can kill them with an algae. But <laughs> so like the actual hunt, I don't expect to be like this epic, you know, uh-huh. Himalayan, Himalayan snowcock like thing. 
Uh, but you know, it'll it'll close another loop because I've um, I'm about a dozen species now, not including waterfowl. I so there's like a dozen waterfowl I still need, but there's not including waterfowl. There's only there's less than a dozen species that have a season and a bag limit that are smaller than a deer that I still have to hunt, shoot, and eat in North America. So I'm closing in on the small game slam, which I don't know that anybody's ever done. That was going to be my question. If there's anybody that is beyond you in, in number of upland birds, waterfalls, because if I, I know of, Oh yeah. So there are, there are plenty of people who have shot the whole waterfowl slam. Right. I have or, or just the upland group. Or, yeah. But for me, if I was going to ask about a squirrel, a duck or you know an upland bird like you're the name that comes to my mind at least when it comes to like what do you do after <laughs> for sure to eat them yeah but yeah. even i mean that's the thing that maybe not everybody recognizes like to eat them you have to get one first right and you've hunted everything that appears in your cookbooks oh yeah yeah i mean I, i'm trying to think if there's any example of no like i no really like I think, the, oh yeah, so there, there's one isolated case, and even that's not, doesn't count. So like I did so my venison ribs recipe in Buck Buck Moose. I originally did it with elk, hmm. but I'd eaten it already and I'd made the recipe, but we needed to photograph it. So I had to get some Nilgai ribs to photograph. That's as close as it gets. But even then I made the recipe before with elk. So hmm. yeah, and, and that's the other thing. If you, in, in On the website and in the books, we ate everything you see a picture of. Hmm. That's very cool. Talk about authenticity. <laughs> um five cookbooks under your belt mm -hmm. i know you're a guy that doesn't let moss grow underneath his <laughs> his uh typewriter as it were no um and you i i can't imagine you're gonna break news on uh on this podcast but can you tease us about what you're working on next i don't know that it would be breaking it because a few people do know about it but um uh voy a escribir un libro de receta sobre la cocina mexicana del norte um, I'm going to, um, uh, my good friend of mine, uh, Patricia Wise, who's from Nuevo León, Mexico, and I, we're going to team up and co-write a book about the cuisine of Northern Mexico. Wow. And, and to that effort, uh, three years ago, I started intensely studying Spanish to the point where, because I want to be able to answer questions in Spanish to both the American Spanish speaking press and to the press in Mexico. And besides, you know, you can't, you can't really write a book about somebody else's cuisine until you can speak their language. Right. right so, right. <laughs> so, uh, that's been a big part of what I've been doing kind of off screen for the last several years. And, and, um, we're starting to travel there and do research trips and kind of eat our way through. And, and, uh, it's been, it's going to be a really interesting book because I'm going to mix, uh, standards you know the things that like if you're from sonora and you pick up our book and you say there's got to be x y and z recipe in it and there's there's going to be there that's going to be true of the whole thing however i'm a hunter and an angler and a gatherer of wild plants mm -hmm. so i have been focusing heavily on those traditions in the area of mexico that we're studying so there are amazing wild fishing game and gathering wild huh. plants and mushrooms traditions in all of these these states so it's going to be it's it's been exciting and it's going to continue to be exciting to you know hunt more in mexico and fish more in mexico and gather mushrooms in mexico and, and do all of this stuff and and really add uh another another layer to what i've been doing basically the last 20 years i i love it and at first blush when you told me a little bit about it i was like 
boy, that's a real big departure. That's sort of odd. And as I've thought about it more, it's not as big a departure as meets the eye because you think about the way a lot of times in your recipes, you do infuse a sense of place Mm -hmm. with the the approach to particular um, animal or bird. And I think about the very first thing that I read that introduced me to you and that was the Chris Niskanen St. Paul Pioneer Press article about the two of you out on the North Dakota prairie yeah. hunting sharpies and you you know you guys got some sharpies and then you did you know made a sauce out of rose hips mm-hmm. you know that were in the very patch of prairie that you were hunting and it's that merger of the sense of place with the wild food that really is kind of what you're taking the next step on with this, with this book. Is that ring true to you or am I making a It does. It does in the sense that, um, sure I could do, uh, I mean, it would be a much bigger departure if we just, if we didn't touch on the, the wild foods of Mexico in this, in this, for this project. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've got to be me. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and like there's just so many cool things. Like there's this weird, it's called Ari. It's a, it's a, it's an aromatic resin that comes out of pine trees in the, in the, the Tarumara Indians in, in Chihuahua and the ants like kind of create this weird sort of aromatic honeydew resiny thing that you then you, you grate it into like a powder on salsas and things. And it has this incredible flavor. And I, I'd never heard of this thing before. No. Like, and I, but I got some when I was in Mexico city last month and I'm like, sweet, this is really cool. <laughs> you know? So there's a ton of things like that where um, even if it's not something that anybody else is ever going to make again, it's, it's important to, to document it and mm. to know it. And like, this is how, this is how the, the Raramuri, which is how they, the Taramara call themselves, uh, the Raramuri, that's what they do with it. And, and this is, these are its culinary possibilities. And, and so in case you ever find some, you know, and, mm. and, and that there's also the, the, just the sort of bridging, bridging the border because, you know, as we know the, the border is just a line what cultural, culturally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I drove from Northern California to South Texas. Uh, and I spent a lot of time along the, our side of the border. And when you're right on the border, it's very different from even, even 50 miles inland. So it, it's, it's just a cool kind of, you know, horizon broadening experience. Hmm. Like I spent a lot of time in Canada uh, and, and I've, I've been everywhere in the United States, like to the point where that Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think there's like four places he mentions. I, I actually haven't been to. And they're all in Appalachia. <laughs> it's just like, he's like, blah, 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 blah. And like yeah, but all of those things. Like, so now it's kind of time to, to, to set the ship a little bit farther, farther afield. So are you teasing a, a Canadian book as the next step? Uh, I'll never say never because there's a lot of, in fact, there's a really cool book that just came out about Newfoundland, hmm. um, called food, food culture place by a friend of mine named Lori McCarthy. Hmm. Uh, she does cod sounds and she's the best Newfie accent. Um, and her book just came out and it's, I can't wait to get into that. So hmm. they're doing great things up there too. Um, last question on this line, you talked about wild foods in Mexico. Have you hunted any new upland birds as a result of researching this book south of the border not yet but i I i've just picked up a really good invitation to hunt i mean i guess there's technically still the same mern's quail as uh as in arizona but they have a very different color phase right around mexico city 
Mm. So uh, a friend is like, yeah, let's go. And I was, I was in Mexico city on a language course. And so I'm like, I'm wearing, you know, urban clothing and I, I didn't even have boots. So I'm like, next time, next time I'll bring the boots and, and we'll come and go. Uh, but yeah, I think it's gonna, it's, you know, there's like the elegant quail that lives down there. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a whole bunch of other species, uh, chachalacas, which are really cool. Um, and then there's a bunch of like curacaos and crazy birds that you can hunt in Yucatan. Mm. And yeah, they're all going to be all going to be on the list. So awesome. I look forward to it. Um, I'll take a, a pause right here as we transition to uh, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. The other thing that's coming up is a deadline. Attention landowners, the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP, is now open. CRP is a great opportunity for those hard-to-farm acres. It also helps improve a farm's profitability, delivers high-quality wildlife habitat, cleaner water, and healthier soils. The CRP sign-up is going on right now through March 11th. Find a local Pheasants Forever biologist at pheasantsforever.org CRP or visit your local USDA service center. Farm the best, CRP the rest. All right, Hank, as I mentioned, um, leading in as the preview, uh, you're keynoting national mm -hmm. the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic Banquet coming up Saturday night, March 12th in Omaha. Tickets Omaha! Omaha! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I say that now and I think Peyton Manning no matter yeah. what, right? <laughs> Always. Um, uh, and, and tickets are, have been selling terrific. We're... As we record this, we're over 1,200 tickets sold, so we're cool. we're glad, very excited that people are anxious to get together in the face of this never-ending pandemic. You know, people are excited to get together and, and share, break bread together, and share a common cause. And um, we're closing in on a sellout, so if folks are interested in getting tickets, please go to pheasantfest.org and, and don't wait very long because. Um, we got to submit our meal counts. And once we do that, <laughs> once we do that for the plates, uh, can I have the vegetarian over. option? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, see it as the name of your speech is drumstick diplomacy. I'm going to say no. Um, but that's, that's, yeah, yeah. I like the vegetarian. Um, so it, it, we started talking about this. I want to say it's like a year ago now. And, it seems like it. And the first thing, first thing you threw out as sort of a placeholder name, is drumstick diplomacy. So you've had this concept in your mind for a long time, mm -hmm. and without, like, certainly we don't want anybody to listen to the podcast and and not come to Pheasant Fest. But you can give a, a little bit of a tease of what your what you have in your mind for this keynote. Um, because it really resonated with me when, when we talked about it. And I think it's going to really connect some dots for, for our members. Yeah. I, um, the one thing that's that I think, I think most people who are familiar with what I do know that I, I didn't grow up as a hunter. Uh, I grew up as an angler and I grew up as a gatherer of wild plants, but I didn't start hunting until I was an adult and neither did Holly. So we both came to this pursuit as adults for very specific reasons. And as it turns out that we were kind of the, the pointy end of a, of a very long spear um, because we started quite a long time ago uh, and, and our colleague Tovar Cerulli coined the, the term adult onset hunter, mm -hmm. which sounds a little like a disease. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's certainly a passion. Uh, 
and there have been whole magazines that have that have sprung up uh, that cater to the a kind of a I don't know how you really want to call it. I guess you know adult onsets as good as anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people who per- picked up the pursuit for reasons of their own uh, as adults, when they had agency and when they had um, you know an ability to put whatever it is that they wanted to do in in motion. So there are stages to that. And like, I think a lot of you listening out there know that, that, that classic stages of the hunter in the sense of, you know, the first you want to just get, be able to shoot your gun, right. Mm -hmm. Then you want to shoot your gun. Then you want to get limits. Then you, uh, then you want to be, you know, one of that top 10% of, because everybody also knows that the top, that 10% of the hunters kill 90% of the game. Mm -hmm. You want to be in that group. And at some point that seeds to that ceases, you know, I've shot enough. Uh, It's not like I'm not going to hunt anymore, but I'm much more interested in in introducing others to it. And then finally there's this kind of, you know, you either lay up your gun or you don't um, like, you know, when you're 80 or 90 or whatever. So what I am finding is that now, finally, you are getting enough adults, you know, hunters who began as adults who have been around long enough where they can fill their freezers and sort of the hunting as grocery shopping is, is, I mean, obviously it's still there, but it's not like, it's not like they're, and I used to do this when I was, when I was just starting out, like, oh, well, how much per pound is it going to cost me for this hunt and blah, blah, blah. And like, it's that fades away because it, there's so much more to this thing that mm. we do than, than that. And you have to have a few seasons under your belt to see it, but you do. And everybody does. Everybody listening to this, who is a, a, even a remotely experienced hunter has seen a spot die, whether that spot, you know, was bulldozed and there's houses on it or it burned like what we were just talking about or flooded or whatever, whatever. We have seen habitat die that we, that, that cared, that we cared about. And, especially when it is a uh, habitat that has been developed, developed habitat doesn't come back. I mean, it's theoretically possible, but it almost never does. So you then realize that, wow, you know, I used to be able to, to hunt pheasants on all of this land. And now half of it is, is either clean farmed, you know, for, you know, we can get into that in terms of the, 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 the economics. I mean, farmers, Farmers need to make a living too, so they they they've got to make a living. So they they end up clean farming, which is to say there's there's no edge habitat. Um, they do that in California in spades. I mean, there's very there's very few farmers in California that don't farm right up to the road, and it might look kind of cool to drive by ten thousand acres of, of almond trees, but there's nothing underneath it. Mm-hmm. And you you start realizing like, wow, the, we don't have habitat. So how do we, how do we fix that? And, you know, how does, how does, you know, Jane Doe or Joe Blow fix that when you're, so let's say you're, 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 you just started hunting six years ago and you live in an apartment in San Francisco. And I know many who fit that description. Will you join pheasants forever or you join quail forever or you join wild turkey or, or cow waterfowl or whatever, whatever, because it's a way for you to, to give back. And to and it, it's the awakening of people who came in here for a meal. You stay for where you got your meal, mm. and and the more you do this, and the more important it is to your own personal set of DNA, because especially people with children. I mean, one of the things I say a lot is choose something in the wild world that 
that that becomes part of your and your family's and the people you love's DNA, whether it's picking berries, hunting pheasants, hunting deer, fishing for walleye, picking morels, or any combination of that. Now, like everybody's like, well, do you think everybody should be like you, Hank? Like, hell no, that's hard. And it takes a lot of time. And and people are busy. They've got children and soccer and all kinds of things. But but pick something or a couple somethings that really, really makes you, you know, excited about and do that as part of your family. So have this connection with the wild world where you are a, a you're standing on the stage. You're not mm. just a spectator. And, and when you do that, you will, you will very quickly see that, oh my, um, that stage is getting smaller and we need to do something to stop that. Mm. And it's this whole new set of people who are starting to get in an awakening of the importance of doing your bit. You know, there are some rich people who own, who own land who can call in pheasants or quail forever and they can work that land to make it more amenable for pheasants and quail. Mm -hmm. And not just pheasants and quail. That's the other thing. It's like, right. I, I have this discussion here in Northern California with ducks all the time. Like, oh yeah, you just want to, you just want to build wetlands so you can shoot ducks. Like, well, sort of like, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, we can, you know, you hunt a, you hunt a, a, a private marsh, like a duck club, maybe three days a week and maybe, you know, and it's, and we have a hundred day season. So that's three months of the year. You hunt it three days a week, but it's a marsh the whole year round. Mm -hmm. And a lot more than just ducks live in that marsh. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think about ducks with a capital D and not the particular ducks, it's a pretty good deal. And it's the same thing with, with pheasants and quail forever, where, you're creating an ecosystem where you're, you're helping an ecosystem revive itself. And it's not just the, the, the game animal that you're pursuing that benefits. It's the entire thing that, 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 that game animal is a part of. And, and what you eventually end up seeing over the years, and, and especially as you become a competent hunter. And, and I think for a, a lot of cases, you have to have the competency under your belt to have, to be able to have the brain space to think beyond lead, uh, keep your head up. Don't fall in the hole, hunt the hunt with the dog, not against the dog. Mm -hmm. Once you're beyond all of that, mm -hmm. you, you have to have the brain space to think that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we need a place. And, and ideally the place is public. And if it's not public, you know, what do you want to leave? Do you want to leave some marginal land that you can, you know, you can get crop insurance on? I mean, sure, you can, if you want, but it's a hell of a lot better to make that into habitat for these creatures that that mm. were there before, a, there before us. And B, when you see a piece, even if it is a if a, a corner of a pivot that is that has natural vegetation, you know, those, those funky corners of pivots. Yeah. Even if it's just that. That is a tiny little spot on earth that we haven't messed up. Mm. And that's important. Mm -hmm. And and once you become, you know, beyond the, the initial stage of, of, of hunting, that becomes more and more and more and more important. And, and actually the bag limit becomes less and less important. <clears throat> I'm, I'm super excited to, to hear kind of the embodiment of this um, final stage of your keynote, because as you talk about it, what I envision in my mind is everything you've just mentioned is sort of represented at Pheasant Fest on the show floor, right? Because there's the habitat stage and the landowner help desk where we meet with landowners and our, our partners in the ag industry are part of the show, right? And mm -hmm. they, 
you know, we talk very specifically about, okay, we could pull on a satellite image with the landowner and talk about, okay, this is great soil. You should farm it. But this little buffer around the stream or this field edge, that could make great quail habitat or great pheasant habitat. And then you, you go to the next stage over and there's the other thing Hank is doing, the wild game cooking stage, right? right? And you're, you're showing how connecting the habitat work we do to a, a tasty meal that more so than any time in my lifetime, people seem to appreciate the the meal that they harvest through a hunting or fishing excursion now and and then you know the whole show is filled with blaze orange shotguns yeah, yeah. yeah um <laughs> you know the path to the upland stage introducing adult onset hunters or even the youth village for mm -hmm. raising kids into the outdoors like what you when you you and i originally talked about this concept i was like well that's the embodiment the hank shaw story is the embodiment of everything that exists on the show floor at Pheasant Fest. And that's going to be darn perfect. And even yeah. so, not to cut you off, but the other piece, you've been super generous in giving us a screaming deal for Pheasant Quail Cottontail as a membership offer for people to walk into the show floor. Become, so what's the, what's the um, book price? MSRP on, on MSRP is $33, $32.95. So 30, $33 if you buy it on Amazon plus. Well, if you buy it at a bookstore, it's $33. Amazon's always cut rate, but. <laughs> so what... so my, biz, my businessman hat. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what Hank's done is sold it to us at a price where if you come to Pheasant Fest, and this is only available at Pheasant Fest, um, you get a copy of Pheasant Quail Cottontail a year membership to Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever, and that's $35 by itself. And you get your entire family, mom and dad and kids, into the show floor, all for the purchase of one $35 transaction. So, and again, we, we couldn't do that without- Even as a thrifty Scotsman? That's a screaming deal. Right. And, and, <laughs> and again, credit to you, Hank, for coming to us as like, hey, how can I help create more members? And and it's just it's something that A, I want to publicly thank you on our podcast, but um I want people to know that. Like there's Hank Shaw cares beyond the meal, right? If yeah. you circle it back, like he hunts. And he produces content for these meals, but coming full circle, it none of it happens. The hunting or the meal doesn't happen without habitat. It's you know you can date it back to all the Leopold or beyond. Connecting the dots to how we treat the land is going to make us live a good life or a challenging life, right? And mm -hmm. so, thank you for sort of representing all levels of that stage of the hunter and the the, the only other piece that you'll hear on on that night is the is the diplomacy part mm. and the diplomacy part is that the everything we've been talking about has been sort of internal us hunters mm. and and our families um but it is the the 
invitation to a, a fine meal. Mm. And uh, it doesn't have to be fancy. Just has to be well done. You know, I mean, it's a bowl of chili or, or pheasant schnitzel or, or the aforementioned general, general general's chicken. Uh, and you're like, yeah, this is, pheas this is pheasant. And, and I hunted it and I hunted it on public land or I hunted it, mm -hmm. you know, X, Y, or Z. When you're, when you're non-hunting guests are there, that food aspect is the bridge towards understanding. Mm -hmm. and, and it sometimes can be a bridge towards uh, increased participation. So every study ever done has shown that the, the American public and the Canadian public overwhelmingly supports hunting when it is done for a meal. And, and so you, you talk to any number of people on the street, even in LA, and they're like, well, did you eat it? I'm like, yeah. And then they're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the, the, to put that into action with your friends, with the people who are at work or wherever that puts, that makes it real. And, and so the ability to um, even just serve them a nice meal, you don't have to be like, well, that's the greatest thing I ever had, mm -hmm. which would be nice. Mm -hmm. um, and if you follow my recipes, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, if you make a, make them a nice meal, make them a pheasant salad sandwich, mm -hmm. like that, that super simple thing that we had in Aberdeen, which is like, it's a great sandwich. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd eat it tomorrow. And, and like, yeah, these are pheasants that we hunted. Are you really? I'm like, yeah, really. And that's that literally visceral connection mm -hmm. between the pursuit that we do and the outside world, because it is an outside world. Mm -hmm. We're a small, we're a bigger group than like vegans, but they're, we're, we're sort of the, the, the other ends of the spectrum in the sense that like they, they have one philosophy and we have another, and we don't necessarily always see eye to eye. Sometimes we do actually, surprisingly. Um, and it's to the, the great middle of people who just buy their, their meat wrapped in plastic. Mm -hmm. Like, no, we do this and this is why we do this. And, and then more often than not, you, you keep doing it and you're going to, some people will peel off and be like, no, I, Hey, when are you going to go hunt pheasants next? I, I kind of want to go with you. Mm -hmm. And they see it and either they like it or they don't. And that's fine, but they've seen it. And that's, and they're infinitely more informed than someone who can just be a keyboard cowboy and say like we're all monsters because they've just they've never left their their suburb. Um, so it's that's the diplomacy part. Mm -hmm. I it, you mentioned that every piece of research ever done it, related to hunting is like oh it's okay as long as you eat it. Mm -hmm. And that came up recently on a conference call with the National Wild Turkey Federation. I was on. It's like the survey said the same thing again. You know, overwhelmingly, you know. To answer that question did you eat it yes okay good it it it, all, it's, it always stops me it's like how i know where you're how going. much <laughs> right like how how big are rednecks and where do the where do, where does this impression from the general public towards hunters come from that they think we're out just shooting things and letting them lay and die it's like my because it goodness. happens because it happens i've seen it uh, hmm. and, and I've seen, there's a term in, in certain parts of the country called ditch cleaning. And it's usually used for ducks where they shoot ducks and throw them in the ditch. Ugh. And, uh, there, I have seen people who will leave an entire deer leg except for the back straps. And cause it, it, it all it takes is once hmm. for that to happen. And it, and it's essentially the bad apple ruins the, ruins the bunch. And so in poaching, 
you know, you'll, you see one newspaper story or, or, or TV news story about some Yahoo whacking a deer in like June mm. <laughs> and, and, and like, Oh, all hunters are all, you know, Neanderthal bastards. And it's those people who make us look like look terrible, but it's not like it never happens. Mm. It's just, it's, it's, it's something that, that we need to fight as strongly, if not stronger than the anti-hunting organizations need to do, because that's what'll end us. It's, it's the non-hunters turning against us. The anti-hunters, you can't, I mean, they're anti-hunters for a reason. They're just, they're, they don't, they don't like what we do. And that's fine. They thought about it. Uh, but there's the, the vast majority of Americans are non-hunters. They have, I grew up in New Jersey. I didn't know a single hunter at all. Hmm. until I was 19 in college and a, and a Mohawk, uh, there's a, a Mohawk Indian was on a cross country team and he was a hunter. It's the first guy I met. I, I went 19 years of my life with never meeting a hunter. And I had no real opinion about hunters other than Elmer Fudd on TV. Hmm. Like I, I, I just didn't know fishermen. Sure. Everybody fished, but nobody hunted. Hmm. And there's tons of Americans like that. Hmm. Tons. So that's why like that first impression is super important. Yeah. All the more reason why you get to come and listen to Hank. Hank Shaw talking <laughs> keynote. Um, as I mentioned, Hank will be on the um, keynote stage, National Pheasant Fest, Saturday night. So the, the tickets you want are the Saturday night banquet. If you can't make that um, or you want to see Hank as on the cooking stage, in addition to the keynote, Hank will also be on the Wild Game cooking stage sponsored by Walton's uh, Friday at 3 p.m. Uh 10 a.m. Saturday, so you got plenty of time to recoup and prep for <laughs> yep. the Saturday Night Big Talk, and then back on the stage high noon on Sunday. And we've got um, Building a Better Stew as your Friday mm -hmm. theme. Uh, getting more out of Upland Game Birds is your Saturday and your Sunday theme. And you've been yeah, doing those, that, that one's that one's subtitled. Uh, There's more to life than skinless breasts. <laughs> well, and, and you've done that one for a number of years, but you're doing it again because it's, it's probably the most popular one, no matter what market we go to, because people and want I change it every time too, because I learn things. I learn things every year. Mm. So it's, it's as I learn that, that presentation gets better and different and changes. Cool. Well, Hank, thank you very much for and not only the keynote, but everything that you do and continue to do for our Habitat mission. You're a hell of a good guy, and I, I really appreciate your time today, but most importantly, your friendship. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's go chase uh, rough grouse or uh, or uh, the mildly invasive non-native <laughs> brightly colored. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll trade you. I, I want to trade you for a mountain quail spot once you figure out if once we figure it out. Yeah, once you figure it because that's yeah, that's a, a bird that's um very high on my list of never never experiencing that that habitat, the terrain, um, or their taste. So that's good. That's on my list. Yep. Don't expect limits, but you know, once we find the spots, you know, you can you can expect a few. Cool. But like, this is not like you're not, the limit's 10 and I've never heard of anybody shooting 10 mountain quail. So we just need one <laughs> each for a meal that we can do. Awesome. Thanks, Hank. Thanks a lot. All right. I'm Bob St. Pierre. Thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks folks.
Hey everybody, join me. I'm Hank Shaw, author of five different cookbooks focused on fish and wild game, including pheasant, quail, cottontail, as well as the website Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. I'm going to be at the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic coming up in Omaha, Nebraska on the weekend of March 11th. I'm super excited to be doing a seminar on how you can get more out of your upland game birds, and I'm also going to be cooking some awesome pheasant and quail dishes that you can sample on the cooking stage at Pheasant Fest. And at the main banquet, I'll be delivering a talk called Drumstick Diplomacy. This is where I'm going to connect my passion for wild foods and upland game bird hunting with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's mission to preserving the future of hunting and the future of habitat for not only the game birds that we chase, but also for the environments themselves. Join me at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic by picking up tickets at pheasantfest.org. That is pheasantfest, all one word, dot org. See you there.